I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. It is an absolute delight to have Issa Noyle with me. I've known Issa for a very long time. We went to university together, and I have just watched her rise and rise and rise, and she is a shiny star I am proud to call my friend and one of my heroes. So Issa is a first-generation Mexican translatina. She was the former deputy director at the Transgender Law Center. She is a seasoned organizer, experienced facilitator, passionate activist, and a national leader in LGBTQ immigrant rights movement. She's currently the deputy director at Mi Gente, a political, digital, and grassroots hub for Latinx and Chicanx organizing and moving movement building. She works extensively for the release of transgender women from ICE detention and an end to all deportations. I have definitely seen pictures of you changed to fences and things. <laughs> Issa is also the co-president of the Women's March Board and is one of the co-founders of San Francisco's community-based organization, El La Para Trans Latinas. She is also on the advisory boards of Familia Trans Queer Liberation, Radical Imagination Family Fund, and the International Trans Fund. She led and organized the first ever national trans anti-violence movement that brought together over 100 activists, mostly trans women of color, to address the epidemic of violence trans communities are facing. And if you don't know much about that, start paying more attention to the news because it is uh, truly an epidemic. She's appeared and been profiled on CNN, MSNBC, Democracy Now!, Latina Magazine, Quartz, Hello Giggle, Vice, and Broadly, and lots of other channels. She was named by Color Lines as one of the 15 remarkable women of color who rocked 2015. And let me tell you, she's still rocking 2020. <laughs> so as I mentioned, Issa is one of my personal heroes. And now speaking to you, Issa, I have watched you evolve and step into yourself and step into your power more and more since those crazy days back in our early 20s when we were at a conservative Christian university in yes. Tennessee. So you can probably imagine, those of you listening who know the American <laughs> South, <clears throat> you don't necessarily know much about me yet from this podcast, but tell, trust me, it's, it's coming. It's coming as I step out of the spiritual closet and otherwise. But oh my gosh, Isa, what a ride. Looking back, almost 20 years from right. each other. We both are comfortable making people uncomfortable because it's just, it just is part and parcel of becoming who we are, right? Yeah. I mean, I... Growing up in a Pentecostal home, I mean, my parents are pastors, and that's why I went to Lee University um, and was part of, yeah, like that upbringing of Bible thumping and kind mm -hmm. of, yeah, really conservative values and um, thought that like in going to a conservative liberal arts college that, you know, I could um, kind of su can suppress a lot of the feelings and a lot of, um, yeah, like my femininity, my queer identity, and just, it was kind of my last ditch effort to, to, you know, turn a new leaf and to, um, mm. 
really continue to suppress uh, all that I had been feeling and thinking in my head since an early child uh, for, from four years old, you know? And so oh, yeah. um, my parents, you know, I grew up in a Bible community in a Bible school in mm. Houston, Texas. And then my parents late, soon became pastors. And so, you know, from an early onset, I was taught to um, not value my femininity and to kind of mm. push it down uh, in a way that would you just bring incredible amounts of shame. Um, and so it's been, you know, this process of healing and of reclaiming. Um, and yeah, I mean, definitely stepping into discomfort and to address past traumas for sure. Yeah. Well, I guess that we're talking about discomfort of not being allowed to be who you are to the point where you internalize it and then send yourself off to Christian college to try to not be who you are. So what was the turning point for you? What was, or was it a progressive turning point? <laughs> Finding community, you know, at this small conservative liberal arts college of 2000 people, like I found other folks who were like in the similar um, play. <laughs> and I think that really, it was such a special time. I really looked fondly during that time and came together and kind of pushed each other in this way where everything felt risky. Every, I mean, we could have easily gotten kicked out, had, had you know, because people had. I don't know why we didn't just drop out and go to a like a secular university <laughs> or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, but we ended up sticking it out I think a lot because, uh, you know, I think our parents had something to do with it. And then mm -hmm. um, and then we found each other and we found that we could have community because we all came from a similar place of understanding um, all the different obstacles. And so there wasn't a lot of um, background that we had to share. We already kind of knew where we were all coming from. And yeah, it made going out for sure definitely a lot more fun. Um, yeah. And it made going to small little town country bars in, you know, Tennessee a lot oh, more, yeah. you know, kind of higher stakes. Cause if we would have gotten caught, it would have been a wrap. Oh my gosh. I remember we used to go to drag shows and oh my gosh, the drag scene in the American South is so incredible yeah. because it's so, so right. intensely counterculture. It's right. just the best drag scene you're ever going to find. It was yeah. my first time seeing trans women. It was like my first yeah. introduction and I, it has a still huge impact. I remember one black drag queen, her name was Anjali. She was, um, you know, she faced a lot of violence. And mm. from my understanding, if I'm not mistaken, she was killed. Um, wow. And so I, I think I didn't realize that the magnitude to later when it kind of, you know, I started my transitioning process as a trans Latina and in my community and it um, realizing that this was an actually the time that I experienced it more intimately in San Francisco with someone that um, was a friend of mine. Um, I didn't realize that that I had already been through that before. Wow. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? Looking back at the moments where you touched the issues that are now so central to what you do and who you are. And like you were always being guided on this path, but I guess talk us through, yeah, the discomfort or an uncomfortable moment that has truly changed your life. I mean, you referred to a few, but are there maybe a couple that really stand out as stepping into your true identity as translatina, coming from, you know, a very macho culture and obviously yeah. a, a, a pastor background. What are a couple of maybe moments that stand out where discomfort really was a pivotal thing? 
when I was graduating, I had to like come back and face sort of my demons and face the reality because I knew if I didn't, then it would just continue to follow me. Um, and before I graduated, you know, I was had thoughts of going to New York and doing all this stuff and continuing to kind of be out and about. But I was like, no, I need to go back and I need to kind of face this because mm. I and, and face my family, essentially, and come out to my family. Um, that's what it looked like. And so, um, and myself, like, you know, it was one thing to kind of be out and about in Tennessee and have fun with friends. But then it was another, like, once I graduated, I had to, you know, kind of face the music and um, it was definitely hard. Like I kind of was fighting it to the very end in coming out and um, I came out twice, came in, coming out as queer first and then coming out as trans and definitely coming out as trans was a lot more difficult for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, patriarchy is so much, it's, it's so intense and embedded, you know, like the shame of what it means to acknowledge the femininity in myself and how much those messages were internalized, you know, from a, at the age of four, you know? What was the difference between coming out as queer and then coming out as trans? I think they weren't necessarily okay with me being queer, but it was more of like, we'll kind of deal with it and it's not so in our face. And I think with being trans, you know, um, I, I love being femme. I love my femininity. I love my expression. I love even just the way that I am internally. And so um, it was, I think they were scared. I think they were also concerned about their own ministry of like, what does it mean Mm -hmm. for a pastor to have a child that is trans, you know, and what is, you know, Mm -hmm. how does that impact their ministry? And so, and I was also concerned about that too, you know, like I, of course, like no one wants this unwanted attention. So much of being trans comes with a lot of unwanted attention as was very, you know, the last several years of this administration has made it, you know, trans people have been one of the prime targets of the right wing and even mm-hmm. just around the world, you know, the, the rhetoric of the right wing um, against, you know, gender ideology and, you know, is just so prevalent. Several weeks yeah. ago we had, um, we observed Trans Day of Remembrance where, you know, kind of recognizing the number of trans women that have been murdered around the world. The numbers have never decreased, it's always increased. And these are just numbers that are reported. So the discomfort of trans identity is layered. It is, for me, it was definitely, it started from this personal place um, to then like my, then my, in within my own community, my family, friends, yeah. and then kind of in, from step from that place, knowing that I could have just kind of stayed there because there was a lot to work with there. Yeah. I decided to even take a, a larger risk and, and leap to the advocacy work and being a, more public about who I am and all that I've experienced. And I was mm-hmm. definitely scared at first because I thought to myself, how is this going to continue to impact my life, um, my safety, uh, my family's safety, the scrutiny that they'll face. And I, I just, all the insecurities came up for me. But I also knew that just that, in this process of stepping out and taking this leap that I knew that so much of my community has been suffering in silence for so long. And the murders of trans women at the time were not not necessarily something that the media was um, talking about or capturing. 
Yeah. Um, and there was this huge sort of like just not acknowledgement, you know, and there was a fight to like even put it on the map to have an acknowledgement, even within the own LGBT community. So it was almost like the comparative discomfort of it was going to be uncomfortable to come out as trans, but it was going to be more uncomfortable not to because you needed to liberate yourself. And and it's clear that you felt you had a calling to, yeah. to step into this identity and this discomfort to liberate others and to fight right. for, for equality and justice and liberation, because I know you well, so yeah. I can say that stuff. There have been lots of uncomfortable moments. Coming out as trans in a Latino community must have been incredibly difficult. But yeah. What was the liberation to be had from that? How did that liberate you personally to step into your power, to become more yourself? I mean, I knew that like I come from a lineage of, you know, ancestors and folks that have sacrificed so much. I, for me, there was both like the personal and the political, um, you know, the personal being I had an uncle who died of HIV in the 90s at the height of the epidemic when there was no resources for Latino communities and in particular for undocumented uh, monolingual Spanish-speaking communities in San Francisco. Again, huh, this is in huh. the 90s in San Francisco. And, you know, he migrated from southern part of Mexico to come to San Francisco because he thought it was a queer Mecca and only to find um, his death, essentially. And that was like kind of what pushed me. There was an anger and there was a, a sort of a resentment of like, why didn't he have any resources? Why was this community being neglected? Um, he could have lived yet. He, he was like a talented, beautiful man with so much energy. Mm -hmm. And yet his life was taken too soon because of the lack of access and the barriers um, that the community, you know, still primarily faces, I would say, yeah. immigrant undocumented communities, access to healthcare and basic needs is still a real a reality. My parents, for the most part, are conservative, but there was this these progressive values that I did grow up with around immigrant communities mm. um, and the organizing that would happen within immigrant communities. People ask me like, where did you first learn to organize? And actually it was within the church and then within the yeah. church community. Me too. Me too. Uh, I, yeah. I love, I credit <laughs> that with like, I am a great community organizer and I have a passion for social justice because my parents are such conservative Christians. And then the political part, I, I mean, I think it's interesting to me that, uh, just within the last several years, it's only been recent that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are giving, given any credit. And that's because of trans, you know, activists and movement leaders. When I was kind of coming up that they weren't mentioned at all in coming out, there was definitely this need to see myself in, in the world, um, in movement spaces. Um, mm -hmm. The large part of the immigrant rights movement, you know, trans women were not um, seen and were not heard of. And it's only been within the last several, like five, six years, uh, seven years that we've seen this groundswell of support or acknowledgement of the systemic murders of trans women. You know, that's, yeah. those are all new ideas that have now been popularized within pop culture and in media. Um, and even just in the past couple of years, right? This is really, really relatively recent, like shockingly recent. Are, are alliances being forged more than they were in the past because there's more awareness? I think the awareness is still in like in the very beginning stages of folks digesting and internalizing and under, like making those connections. Like I hear definitely for a lot of folks, you know, intersectionality and these buzzwords um, around in movement spaces or in 
when we're talking about, um, you know, racism, when we're talking about, you know, the discrimination that people face, um, and this idea that our 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 fates and our lives are linked, um, and that none of us are free until all of us are free. And so these yeah. ideas are being popularized or being talked about, but I don't think we've seen the full sort of, um, you know, fruition and and realization. Um, yeah, and maturation. Yeah, yeah, like we've not yeah. seen that fully kind of come about in this way that I think people are still like within the Latino community, there's still sort of this reckoning, reckoning conversations around internalized, um, mm. you know, racism and patriarchy. Um, and within the LGBT community, there's still a lot of like, you yeah. know, anti-Blackness sort of conversations that need to happen and acknowledgement um, because we need to definitely see our movements as linked and how they support each other. The far right is intersectional in their yeah. attacks, in their policies, in the ways that they are detaining people, incarcerating, caging people, um, you know, the ways that borders are set up, uh, mm -hmm. the criminal justice system is set up, it is intersectional. <laughs> so um, mm. I think that we are definitely have this uh, huge opportunity to continue to hunker down and to um, step into, yeah, um, conversations that are hard with each other yeah. within within movement within left leftist movement spaces and groups um, who are like really thinking beyond policy changes or beyond campaigns um, but like lar this larger uh, vision of liberation for all of us mm, and do you feel like maybe 2020 in particular but recent history with black lives matter with just the pressure of covid and the fact that our systems are kind of in meltdown has it made it easier for people to have uncomfortable conversations? I think it's more in, I think it's more in your face. Um, you can't escape it. Um, hmm. I think you know it's in your it's in your TikTok, it's in your Instagram story, it's in your Facebook timeline, um, it's in your Twitter feed. You know, um, celebrities yeah. are jumping in. You know, giving their two cents. You know, however, you know, kind of maybe problematic at times that they are or like not <laughs> yeah. their analysis is off. But I think that people are trying um, to make connections and connect the dots for folks um, and to share their platforms mm -hmm. so that popular culture can kind of catch up with what the movement is, is thinking and feeling. And, um, you know, I, I do feel that uh, there is, something that continues to give me hope um, within our movement with so much devastation is that, yeah, communities are, are, are creating magic within their organizing within the grassroots and mm -hmm. they are, um, they are making, making alliances. They are um, trying to have each other's back and show up however imperfect it might be, but people mm -hmm. are making those interventions and they're showing up in these ways for each other that, um, and so I just hope that, you know, folks in their local communities continue to nurture that, those spaces and that all the movement spaces are, are for sure intentional in their approach to being intersectional, having cross conversations that kind of sharpen their analysis, understand that gender justice, uh, violence against women is also a climate issue. It's also a reproductive yeah, reproductive. Um, justice issue is also an immigration issue you know like there are all yeah, these yeah. things that kind of intersect that if we see and if we open our eyes 
and we have these conversations again, not always getting it right, but stepping yeah. into that, that we can then kind of push, push ahead. That's something that's definitely come up a lot in conversations I've been part of or observed as, you know, a white person trying to help other white people get their head around their whiteness and the discomfort of that. And just being, having yeah. to just say, we're going to get it wrong, but we're going to keep trying and yeah. we're going to try to fail better, you know, a very Brene Brown way to put it. But I perhaps am naively optimistic. I was speaking at an event today about trends and I see the rise of activism and the activation of people you never would have seen as activists it is a sign of, of hope if we yeah. look at some of the issues we care about. You know, yeah. like in London, you see grandpas gluing themselves to trains as part of Extinction Rebellion in Portland. You see grandmas out on the street right. protesting Black Lives Matter. Do you think that is, is that actually happening? Is there a reason yeah. to be optimistic? I mean, we have seen incredible sort of courage come from the last four years, you know, from mm -hmm. from young adults, um, from tragedy, you know? And I think that's that's been my own experience. I mean, that's how I came into uh, this work. It was out of tragedy. It was losing uh, someone from our community, a trans Latina immigrant from Nicaragua, who, and her name is Ruby Ordeana, um, it was, uh, right after college, you know, part of my healing process was to connect with my community, with queer and trans Latinos and Latinx folks. And, um, I volunteered at this, uh, English language learner, uh, program and she was our first student. She showed up mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, with so much hope in her eyes and wanting to learn English and wanting, she had just arrived and. Uh, wanted to, yeah, just be successful and then also support her community and understand like she had gone through so much just to get here. Um, and yeah. she walked in through those doors and we were connected from that. Um, and when she was killed later, brutally in San Francisco years later, it shook me to my core. Um, mm. And I, in that moment, realized I could not just stay in that place of mourning that I had, there was, I had to do more. Um, because then I also, you know, it was it, it didn't stop there. The violence yeah. continued to grow, not just in San Francisco, but in around the world. And I started to feel that this rage in the violence and in the murder of trans women who were sex workers, who were marginally housed, who were unemployed, who were discriminated in higher education, who, you know, just were trying to live their lives in against all odds, you know? And so yeah. the courage that has been instilled in me has been from communities that have faced so much adversity um, that have turned that rage into positive community action and supporting each other. Um, I've seen so much magic within uh, community organizing and, you know, trans groups in the deep South in uh, immigrant communities who have, you know, face so much and are still supporting each other. Um, this is a beautiful illustration of what we talk about, about the role of discomfort and how it shapes us to be powerful because you're talking about deep, deep discomfort and discrimination and your own grief and what you turned it into. Like that grief of having somebody close to you yeah. be killed. You turned it into righteous rage that actually activated you and gave you yeah. purpose and direction and that's just absolutely, that's beautiful. That's that thing to bottle up and say, this is, 
this is one of yeah. those moments that shaped who you are and what you do in the world. And it came from deep pain. And I couldn't, I think for myself, I, you know, that it's been a journey because I think that righteous rage, like you said, cannot stay bottled up. And it definitely manifested and organizing definitely has been healing practice. And I, there was this other part of trauma, even in just understanding the violence that surrounds trans women, that I had to continue finding healing spaces and opportunities um, because the trauma can eat you alive. Yeah. Uh, the trauma of understanding what you're up against. Um, so I had to do some more kind of more work around letting go of trauma and letting go mm. of that rage even to get to this other place of consciousness, another place of uh, understanding myself and the, the toll that trauma takes in this work. Even in organizing spaces, it is not easy to um, fully comprehend what is happening in the moment when you are, when crisis is happening, when communities are under attack, um, when folks are trying to uh, get out of detention, um, get out of these cages, when folks are trying to cross the border and when folks are experiencing violent attacks, that in those moments of action and response and in uh, dealing with the situation and supporting communities that the trauma, the secondary trauma and the ways that these situations happen pile up. And it's mm -hmm. like little bits of sand that just start to pile up. And then all of a sudden, if without realizing it, you are carrying this huge, weight of other people's trauma and even just the systemic uh, understanding of trauma. I love how you talked about activism as a healing practice for your own trauma and grief and discomfort, yeah. because I find that as well. I'm, I want to heal the world and, and it's about healing myself. You know, one of the reasons why I joined the Women's March, um, the organization formally was birthed out of a response to, yeah, really the frustration of years of neglect um, by feminist organizations. You know, the organization was still struggling with the idea of gender in the more expansive way. And, you know, mm -hmm. trans women were not necessarily being acknowledged in intentionally and, um, or even just like, yeah, kind of looped into the behind the scenes organizing. And I wanted to really, um, I saw an opportunity to really make an intervention and to show up and to, yeah, not just complain and or tweet about sort of the shortcomings of the Women's March. I wanted to, uh, yeah, add my two cents into the mix to really bring in that voice and that experience of the work that I've been doing and the communities that I'm a part of. And I also realized that I have to challenge myself. I also have to ask, find mm. spaces that I need to find nurturing and that can fill me and that see me and that are kind of spaces where I can renew myself and understand how can I uh, replenish all that I put out and the energy mm. that I give out. And so I think to me, the healing spaces and the trauma work that I've done has definitely been super important in this kind of holistic way that I um, mm -hmm. I'm approaching the work as it not just being a political intervention or a political practice, but also holistic. You know, I also understand this work as it being a, a marathon. I loved what you said about this as being a holistic movement. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that, that holistic piece, because this is how you approach it. The spiritual aspect, the political mm -hmm. aspect, sort of unpack that a bit more, because yeah. that's really fascinating. 
Yeah, I'm Mihente, the organization that I'm currently at. We, we had to bring in healing justice, um, build that into our organizing um, in the ways that, yes, we're committed to fighting ICE and dismantling systems of oppression. We also had to kind of reach in to practices that would help us to decolonize, that would help us to fill our cups, that would help us to understand the impacts of injustice on our bodies um, and in our minds and spirits. And I think, you know, again, uh, something that I am grateful for my family and my upbringing is that I kind of just this value of understanding that there is this other sort of realm of possibility and of energy that is out there in the universe that helps to guide our work and to tapping into some of those indigenous practices um, and healing spaces and ritual has been really important in this work. At Ella Para Transatinas in San Francisco, our organizing space is the hub and the key center of that. Our physical space is this altar that we have of all the trans women that have been murdered. Um, and that space, it can feel heavy and for sure is, it is a reminder of the commitment that I have in this fight. But it is actually also a beautiful space that we, so many of those women, one, have been forgotten by the biological families. And then yeah. two, it is, um, there is a sense that they are watching over us. There is a sense of that they are providing energy mm -hmm. back to us in how we continue to fight. And so I think to me, the, um, the spiritual practices, the indigenous practices have been really important in, the form, in my formation, in my identity, um, in how mm -hmm. I relate to communities. Um, it is what we go to when we have lost all hope essentially, yeah. when policies yeah. have failed us, when police have come in and, and conducted raids in our community. Um, I think it's been those practices that have really helped to follow the next step and follow a possibility um, and a way when there is no way in right in front of you. Oh, that is beautiful. But also it honors your heritage and it recognizes that there's collective trauma, but there's also inherited trauma that you have to heal. And basically you're by healing this, you are helping to heal wider society. You don't have to be trans or Latina to, to benefit from that. The staying open, I think is really key of continuing to grow. And, you know, the process of consciousness raising is never ending. Um, mm -hmm. The process to me of decolonizing your mind, your spirit is never ending. You know, the state is actively trying to um, diminish all of those things and erase all of that wisdom and mm. knowledge from the community and from, uh, yeah, just connecting us from a greater truth. And whether mm. it's the systemic way indigenous communities have been wiped out in the United, in the Americas or, you know, the ways that even the acknowledgement of trans identities has been erased even within indigenous communities, right? And so how do we yeah. reclaim? How do we um, continue to challenge spaces? And, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful pieces about the trans community and why I love trans youth so much. They were constantly, ch you know, challenging the binary. They were constantly ch challenging yeah. gender identities and they would try on and they were questioning pronouns and would... That's why it's not stagnant. That's why, we, you know, the, the binary has continued to, it continues to be dismantled, seeing the ways that trans youth continue to challenge even the trans community around how we talk about gender identity, uh, gender orientation and gender expansiveness, I think is a um, is beautiful reminder of 
that, yes, I think let's ground ourselves in history and in what our ancestors have built upon and also the possibility for the possibility mm-hmm. for a new fresh vision and sense of being, of wellness, sense of health, a uh, sense of community safety. And yeah. I think we can build upon that. What do people listening to this podcast need to sit with and be uncomfortable about? What do we need to grapple with? We all have a role in dismantling systems of oppression. This administration and the president, Ivanka's father. Uh, <laughs> I refuse to say his uh, name, so we call him Ivanka's dad. Yeah, Ivanka's dad. He didn't just happen. He wasn't an accident. He is definitely the manifestation of white supremacy and the realization of white supremacy um, materialized politically. And so I think I, you know, I work around a lot of detention issues. And I've also said that, you know, detention and the kind of prevalence of detention didn't just happen. It's been a slow breakdown of of seeing people, of diminishing of people's humanity and the obsessive kind of compulsion of punishment and punishing each other. And I, you know, when I've done detention center tours and I've gone inside, I always kind of feel there's this huge like magnifying lens above the detention system where it's all the ills of like, you know, transphobia, homophobia, patriarchy, misogyny, xenophobia, all those ills like kind of are lasered and focused in a, and magnified within a detention context. If we are wanting to see these harmful systems getting rid of them, then we have to really have... Uh, conversations within our own families, uh, within our communities, within our churches, within our school settings, within our, you know, kind of our crew, our friends. To me, the the idea that the personal is political and the political is personal has been very true throughout my life. And so I think we all have a role to play. Having these detention centers um, is not healthy for communities. The criminalization of Black lives and Black people around the world is a detriment to all of our humanity. And if we don't quickly step into those conversations, there is so much to lose. Police violence is growing and escalating at an alarming rate. Proliferation of detention is growing at an alarming rate. The climate is in crisis. Mother Earth is screaming for help from all of us. And I think that the ways that we are needing to hunker down and really, really address these issues head on is critical now more than ever. Um, yeah. We all need to yeah, step out with some courage and know that we are going to find our way if we kind of continue to make the connections within our community and, and the ways that all communities are fighting for their survival and existence to build something healthy for all of us. Amen. Yeah, it's basically time to sit with the uncomfortable questions because the more we ignore them, it's like the tide. It's going to keep coming in. It's going to keep coming closer. They are becoming unavoidable. And our job is no longer to make people think that there's an easy fix. It's time to sit with some very juicy, complex, uncomfortable issues and then figure out how we can play a role in grappling with them because they affect us all, right? Yeah. Oh, Asa, my darling, it has been a delight and I'm just so happy to see you on screen and to hear your voice and to have your wisdom and your words and your experience because we've come a long way from the university in Tennessee, haven't we? <laughs> Here we are. Well, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute delight. 
Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. <laughs>